0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM channel 132.
0: Welcome
1: to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold. I'm a register representative for Side Fund Services. I'll be joined by Christopher Gennady, who's Global Head of Research and also a register representative for Side Fund Services. And Professor Siegel is a senior economist for Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products and the views or guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree affiliates. I'm back on Wharton's campus. I've got Eric Rothman from Center Square. He's a PM at Center Square. We're going to be talking a lot about real estate, what's happening there for housing, for office, for some of these big things. Eric, welcome to Wharton.
0: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
1: We're going to have a great conversation with Eric. Uh, today. But Professor, hot, well, it's an interesting jobs number. Uh, Interesting to get your reaction. The markets are enjoying what's happening. What is your take on the latest data?
2: This is a Goldilocks situation. Um, First of all, you know, you had yesterday uh, where you had um, the nominee for vice chair, Jefferson, Philip Jefferson say, that he thinks a pause is, is justified. That's that's a signal from Powell, um, not that it couldn't change, uh, but this would not change it. Yes, the payroll was strong, but there's two real big offsets to that. First of all, um, the work week dropped another tenth of a percent. And I've often discussed how people ignore the work week, because dropping it is like 250,300 hours, people at, at the same number of hours, it actually dropped um, not quite to a pandemic low, but uh, the lowest it's been in three and a half years. Um, uh, the, the, so even though we've got more workers, the number of hours that they're putting in is not really increasing very much. More important than that was the household that that jump of the unemployment rate from from six, four to six, seven was really noteworthy. I was really worried that if it continued to go down, we would have unprecedented tightness in that labor market. So the household report was measurably weaker than the payroll report, uh, smaller increases and uh, a lot of influx into the labor market, which jumped that unemployment six point six, seven, I think is the highest in a year. Uh, it takes that pressure off of the tightness there. In addition, we have the wages um, go up at or even slightly lower than expected. So they're not uh, increasing more than expected. So, you, um, you, you, you know, you, 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 have a, you have a very a great situation. And the market is properly responding. I think, you know, the, the, the pause. I think the market knows the Fed has gone high enough does not want any more tightening. Um uh so when they got that message, at least for June that there won't be, there'll be a lot more data before that July meeting to see actually what happens. Um but um uh this this uh, this report does not give uh uh over ammunition to the, the Hawks. I mean there were three reports before the meeting the um uh the uh the PPI uh, report um uh this labor report and the consumer report that comes in right on the first day of the meeting and and they are not signaling uh any sort of uh, uh, of increase. Yes, we had a higher p c e yes, there's lingering on the core, but at this particular juncture uh we're we're seeing less pressure on wages and less pressure uh, on the labor market with that jump to 6.7 and the unemployment rate. In the meantime, we've had some really great earnings and it even extends beyond NVIDIA. Yet yeah, are misses, but there are also some big makes, um, uh, and we've, uh, stopped the decline in, in, um, uh, earnings estimates in 2023. So this is also really good, good, good news. Um, you know, you know what can happen, you know, uh, the fact that the Fed is pausing, does this mean that if we get a real weak unemployment re- uh, report uh, coming up? Uh, JOLTS was on, on the tighter side, to be sure, but remember, uh, reporting percentages for JOLTS have gone way down in the last three years, and there's a big question of the reliability of that data. Much rather look at the household and, and the establishment survey, Uh, such as, uh, you know, came out uh, today uh, as giving a a read on it. Uh, Jobless claims are remaining very solid. They're not going up or down. Um, They would be a first indicator if we had a lot of layoffs. Um, And um, I still am maintaining that we are going to have some negative payroll reports, which is going to put pressure to lower by the Fed, depending on what happens elsewhere. Commodities have jumped the last couple of days, but that's only in relief of the um, uh, 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 the, the fact that the, the debt ceiling is solved and, um, uh, the, you know, the Fed may not over tighten. Uh, the commodities are still in a long-term downtrend. We're getting no inflationary pressures from that. We're not getting much inflationary pressures from wages. Um, uh, housing is a little bit of a surprise. Uh, we, we had a tick up of the Case Shower Index. And the FHFA index also was up before, so that downward movement, I thought it was had another five, six percent in it. But it is, has it turned around weekly. Um, but that was when mortgage rates were six. Mortgage, thirty-year mortgage rates have gone above seven. It'll be very interesting in a month or two. Remember that case show it lags by two months. Whether uh, we'll continue uh, the uh, upward movement or resume the downward movement that actually um uh, started in June of um twenty um
1: twenty two. Yeah it's gonna be interesting our our alternative inflation measures got a little little pop, little pop because of those those Schiller numbers.
2: Yeah the year over year now when we we use it and of course we the way we do it because of the lag in the case shower is is an averaging and, and so we got a little pop. But if I remember right, Jeremy, I think we're at two point eight percent year over year core. Um now, yes, at, uh, approximately uh, what we had, that's still, I mean, it's it's less than one percentage away from the, the Fed target. Um, and the Fed didn't expect to reach its target until, uh, you know, the end of 2025. So I would say that, you know, uh, th- this is, is certainly not uh, bad news. You know, people talk about the sticky aspects. We know the lag. They're still reporting big increases in housing and we'll do so for a number of months That biases that that upward um uh you know my my belief is that we've made a huge amount of progress i mean when 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 people uh, the number of people that are uh, f- firms that are mentioning inflation is is much lower the m- n- number of firms that mention can't get labor is much lower Every, everything is moving in the right direction the fed must be patient in terms of the cumulative effect of monetary policy seems like that is what a power will argue again we have another you know it's more than two weeks away so we we two weeks away there's going to be more data again The consumer price index some more jobless claims data but take a look at the price index from the ism that's very important down below 50. well you know next week we'll see the service sector but the, the manufacturing, again, is down below 50, which means falling prices on that uh, very timely index for uh, the month of um, May. Uh, you know, so now there may be some dissents. I, I wouldn't be surprised if board wants to continue upward, depending on how the data comes in on the consumer price index. But oil is down. Headlines, therefore, should be down when we get that CPI uh, for the month of May.
1: So, Professor, I did some math on the hours worked with the the 150. Uh, you know, now we have 156 million workers, and the one tenth decrease. I my math showed 453 thousand jobs would have been required to keep hours worked constant. So, right. hours worked actually declined. Does that math yes. sound right to so, you?
2: So, the, and, and the math is simple because when you're at 30 and you go down one tenth, that's three. Tenths of one percent, and as you yes. said, when you just just yes. multiply three tenths of one exactly. percent by one hundred fifty million, there's your four hundred fifty thousand. I want to make sure I didn't miss head. something.
1: Yes, exactly.
2: <laughs> and, and and that that is absolutely right. I mean, um, uh, you know, I I, I you know, I, I I was listening to news reports and like uh, at least the ones that I would no one mentioned that right that, that uh, how much. Uh, hours have fallen, and its total hours worked—not just the number of work. Why do they just look at the number of workers and not multiply it by the number of the, the the work week to get the number of hours worked? That's the input into the into the production function. Um, but uh, you know, anyways, that's why we have our program We're trying to tell people how to look at the big picture here rather than uh, concentrate on narrow data that doesn't tell the big picture.
1: I knew when I saw the number, that was exactly how he was going to lead the show for working 20 years. I, I know him <laughs> well. We have Eric Rothman here, who's going to talk about housing. Eric, if I could grab you for 30 seconds, sure. the professor mentioned he had originally thinking maybe housing had 4 to 5%. Any quick views on housing to, to share with the professor?
0: Yeah, I would just uh, uh, posit that I think it's a bit of a supply issue that um, there's not a lot of... Ho- existing homes for sale because you've got a situation where people are locked in with these very low mortgage rates. And so if you don't have to sell your house today, you're not likely to sell it. Maybe you're more likely to try and rent that house. Um, And so I think we're going to see a big shift in the mix of what types of homes are sold from new construction to taking share from uh, existing construction. But I guess just kind of how do you think about uh, perhaps that, um, you know, locked in, Owners with you know very low rate debt that are loath to give up that uh, that debt. Yeah.
2: But we have to think about new owners. I mean, it's hard to believe three years ago you could get a thirty year mortgage for three percent or less. Since that time, the average price of a home has gone up over forty percent, and in many areas over sixty percent, seventy percent, with more than doubling the mortgage. This this shock to affordability the major measures you know how much house can you buy at the given interest rate is one of the biggest uh sharpest increases we have had in history um in terms of the average person going in there and said what kind of how what can i afford on buying a house i mean we haven't seen this before um that's just it i mean the cost of home ownership for the average American has gone up well over a hundred percent. Tell me how much wages have gone up in the last three years be
0: interesting. That, that's
2: that's the big picture
0: yeah absolutely Who cares
2: about i mean there's a shortage there's not a shortage or whatever. The cost of home ownership going up a hundred to a hundred and fifty percent is you know the biggest single purchase that people make is something that. Economists have to take cognizance of.
0: Understood. Yeah, I think it will pro- it likely pushes people to be more renters for far longer. No,
2: oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you know, all of a sudden, I you know, I, if you, if you can't pay cash, um, you know, um, I I can't finance it. I mean, what, what I the 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 type of home that the average American income can now finance has probably in the last three than three and a half years shrunk by fifty
1: percent
2: i mean in terms of given the same income i mean it uh, as i said i I've, I've done a cursory look at record and have never seen a decline in affordability as fast and as rapid and as deep as what we experience well but, professor um you know uh what would that does for prices in your But you are particularly right. You know, if I got that 3% mortgage, I don't want to move somewhere else where I get the 7% mortgage.
1: Well, have a great weekend, Professor. Thanks for joining Thank us you. to kick off the show on a very big week of of, yeah. of jobs, economy. Yeah. Thank you. We're going to continue our conversation here. we got Eric Rothman down at the Wharton studio. Uh, we got Chris Ferganati our global head of research focuses a lot on thematics and real estate is one of those areas we work with Eric's firm center square. We license his, his index for the Center Square New Economy Index for one of our ETFs, so it's great to get your perspective and 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 really as an active manager for real estate, but building an index, you guys have a lot of unique insights. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting all those views. But for for our listeners just learning about Center Square, give it, give our listeners a little bit about your firm, a little bit about yourself uh, that brings you brings you here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're uh, Center Square is a dedicated real estate investment manager about fourteen billion dollars across primarily uh, public real estate securities U.S and global, as well as uh, direct real estate investments. And then we also do some uh, mezzanine lending and and, uh, kind of have a a debt book as well. So we invest up and down the capital stack, public and private. And again, we're exclusively focused on real estate with offices here in Philadelphia, um, New York, London, Singapore, and Los Angeles. I've been at Center Square for a good long time now about 17 years, hard to believe. Uh the firm itself goes back to uh, to the uh, late 1980s and was actually founded uh by uh, a Wharton professor, Scott Erdang.
1: Very nice, good to get you guys back Indeed. here on campus. Um you know, we 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 kicked off a little bit with housing as one of the key macro issues. Um any any reaction to the professor's comments there or any other further thoughts on housing that we we should talk about. Everybody's thinking about their home as is a huge asset. And uh, what, what, what happens in home prices is very, absolutely very critical to the,
0: to the consumer. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, you know, as, as we look at it from a commercial perspective, right, we're both mostly or exclusively really kind of uh, residential for rent housing. When you think about the number one reason that somebody moves out of an apartment, bar none, depending, you know, regardless of the environment, it's always to buy a home. With affordability as challenged as it is, with the difference between being able to rent a home versus buy a home today in terms of that, that uh, spread, renting is almost always cheaper, but the spread today is one of the biggest it's ever been. We think that's going to keep a lot more folks as renters rather than as, uh, as prospective owners. <clears throat> and so as we've critically underbuilt the amount of uh, new supply of all residential in this country – um, but most recently, uh, particularly in the uh, the multifamily space. And so you have kind of this kind of interesting dynamic where the millennials are starting to enter their peak home buying years, but they're not necessarily going to be able to do so as prior generations have because of this affordability issue. And so we think that they're going to continue to be renters, but their 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 life situation is going to demand a different type of living arrangement than an apartment, right? Maybe they have a, a, you know, a first child and a dog and they're looking at a second one coming on. One bedroom apartment, two bedroom apartment, uh, you know, around the corner here isn't going to yeah. satisfy them. So um, one of the the big investments that we've made both on our direct side, as well as our lending side, as well as uh, in the security side is pushing towards single family for rent. So these are companies that uh, own large pools of, Single-family homes, so standalone homes in the close-in suburbs, but they rent them. Um, it's kind of a, a new space that's risen out of the uh, GFC. And um, it is, it's really taking an enormous amount of uh, uh, the market share uh, today from would-be purchasers. Hmm.
1: Oh, let's stay on the macro for a moment. It, so housing is one of the big macro stories, but this you know, remote-first Uh, question about office space and demand for office space is another big topic for all real estate investors and having an expert like you guys here in the studio would love to hear your take. What's happening in office? Is there pain to come in the whole economy from what's happening there? What's your view on offices?
0: Offices in a very tough spot. Um, Not too much of a surprise uh, to us. We've been watching it for a while. We've been concerned about it for the better part of three years. Um, some of these predictions that, uh, you'd have, uh, a return to office and kind of a normalization of, uh, the return to office seem to have fizzled. Uh, nationally, we're kind of stalled as a country at only about two thirds of the level of people going into the office, um, as pre pandemic. And that when well, we've been kind of stuck at this two thirds level now for about a year and a half. Hmm. Um, so it feels like it's much more permanent than, um, than not. Because people can go back. Well, right. Exactly. And today, you know, with, the uh, Labor market, as tight as it is, maybe empl- employees are in a little bit more of an opportune position to demand that they don't have to go in. Now, maybe that changes if the economy starts to soften even more and you know, labor management gets the uphand, upper hand. <clears throat> um, but w- clearly, I think people are more productive or can be more productive at home. And so it's, it's a permanent fixture we think. Um, Some cities are in a little bit better condition from a return to office standpoint, but even the best are only about 75%. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a 25% reduction in demand because you may still have your office, even though you're only there four days a week or three days a week. Um, Now, maybe it's configured differently, or maybe we have fewer conference rooms because more of it happens virtually. So there will be a long tail of an evolution of office space, the changing usage, Um, but office is in a very difficult position as a result. There's there's no question that there's been a big erosion of demand. Um, Now, the interesting thing that a lot of people forget when it pertains to the REIT market is how tiny, tiny office space is as a portion of the US. And how
1: has that changed over time too?
0: So if we were to go back uh, 15 years ago, it's probably 15 to 20 percentage points of the overall REIT index. By the way, in terms of like private funds, if you're accessing real estate through kind of a core real estate fund, you might find that office exposure, because you kind of are focused on the four food groups there of uh, retail, office, industrial, and apartments, tends to be a far higher twenty five to thirty percent. The REIT market is three percent today because they've of, been
1: because they've been <laughs> underperforming and they've been shrinking.
0: They've been underperforming and they've been shrinking, but that's only a small piece of it. The other piece of it is the rise of all of this other. New economy real estate, modern logistics, data centers, towers, life science. Um, And so while it is a story about office shrinking, it's as much a story about everything else within the REIT market that most real estate investors who are on core products don't have the ability to access outside of the REIT market.
1: Chris, let me just bring you in for a moment, see if you have any macro concerns before we dive deeper into sort of things on affecting the modern economy of real estate. Any other macro things on your mind, things you want to jump in with?
3: Since uh, we were talking about office there, Eric, I was uh, just curious, thinking about if you're seeing a demarcation between kind of that, that classic, you know, the longstanding traditional cubicle situation and I, it's it's sort of a bad thing that we think of maybe we work first is that idea of the shared space type office with the fancy amenities and different things that might attract a different pool of, uh, of users but I'm just wondering do you do you see enough or is it too early to say if there's genuinely a difference between that sort of shared space new kind of office versus a lot of the old school players who might, like you're like you're saying, have been shrinking, have been having the issues.
0: A new office is the only thing, the only thing tenants want today. We new, use that new that, buildings, that. Uh, highly amenitized buildings, um, more collaborative space is the only thing tenants want. And so, yeah, no, I, I, it's a great question, but I wouldn't say we're you know we, we, it's too early. We, I think it's pretty conclusive at this stage.
1: Pretty definitive. It's that that is quite interesting. Um, in the, uh, the other big macro trends for real estate has been, it sort of ties into the modern economy is, is sort of retail space and, and malls and other things affecting tra- what well, you think of traditional real estate. What's the story there? Is, is, is any of that stuff getting oversold over cheap? H- how do you see valuations in, in that segment?
0: <clears throat> yeah, the, uh, the retail space is a real interesting one, I think, because you have a real dichotomy between the open air, convenient retail and regional malls, okay? So regional malls are built as fortresses. They're not really con- built to be convenient. They're, bu- they're built to tr- lure you into one of the four doors, to, you know, and hopefully through yes. a, a, a department store, and then to get you locked in, they're kind of like a casino and you sort of forget about the time and you spend a bunch of money. But it's not about if I'm just kind of swinging home uh, and I want to stop and run in and get something I ordered online, pick it up in the middle of the store, not designed for that whatsoever, so with the rise of e-commerce, um, those assets have, I think, rightly suffered. Um, regional malls, traditional, old-style regional malls. It, just think about the last time you were at a mall, and I bet you you got to go back quite a
1: while. You know what? It's interesting. I've got ten, I've got an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they kind of have been asking to go to King of Prussia recently, really? occasionally. Well, Matt.
0: that's the one that'll last, I guess. That'll, that's the one that'll be more interesting. Have they asked to go to Nesemone Mall or Granite yeah. Run, what's left of Granite Run Mall or Plymouth Meeting Mall? Probably not. Um and so what I think is interesting, though, is, is so you have one situation where these traditional regional malls, which are always the fortress, uh, and, and with that a lot of uh, real estate investors kind of built their portfolios around, particularly the big guys, um, are and have been and can remain in a secular decline. To your point, King of Prussia will continue to, to be the mall here in Philadelphia, probably the same thing with Cherry Hill just across the river. But we're going to go from a situation where we had 17 malls. Roughly speaking, in the Philadelphia region, to probably two that are relevant. Yeah, the uh, the threshold for what's an A mall continues to get higher and higher, higher in terms of sales per square foot. But at the other side of it, you have these open air retail centers, convenience oriented retail centers, smaller format centers that are already in the neighborhoods. Where, by the way, we're all spending more time in today because we're not downtown office. We're out in. The burbs. the burbs, and um, so you're seeing a real shift in demand from that bakery at the bottom of a you know tall building, coffee store, um, to that same use, but out in the suburbs. Beyond that, the retailers have uh, been exclusively focused over the last 15 years on their online distribution, and while they haven't always been able to make money with it, they finally, during COVID, figured out their inventory processes to be able to make sure that when they sent you to this location to pick up the blue shirt, that you had it there in the medium, not the large, but, you know, so that they could tell where the the, the inventory was at their location. So they they kind of perfected this ability to execute on buy online, pick up in store. And that's actually driving a lot of traffic today, dramatically more so than just three years ago, to these suburban locations. And you have to be able to do it in a place where you can park 15 feet away from the door, run in, get it at the front, and out. Uh,
1: you know, I think the friction, I, I mean, speaking personally from experience on Amazon, is you, I, I, I think we buy more immediately because you, are your friends telling you about this great thing that they bought? And before it would take you weeks to go to a store to sure. say, I'm going to go buy it, oh, I here here's the link you buy it it's delivered two days later yeah it, it, completely
0: and, and it's pretty amazing right you can well you're just kind of wasting time you can look and shop whereas before you literally had to be in the store to uh, to shop so you know clearly and that has a whole lot of implications for logistics and data centers and so forth but um yeah the uh, don't count the uh, open air shopping center out we uh, we like it quite a bit and then there's a lot of categories that are impervious to it right can't get your nails done online anymore or, or, you, or, or you can't get your nails done online you can't get a haircut online um it's, it's dry cleaning all of that restaurants uh, you need a place to have that type of retail so retail is always in a state of uh, creative destruction but perhaps never more so than it has been the last three years
1: um and so the the valuations on some of those segments are- Yeah,
0: valuations. So um, clearly, a lot of these kind of secular trends have been reflected in the stocks already. And the stocks, the REIT market immediately reacts to, to new news, right? And particularly in the publicly traded space where we're talking about, not kind of these funds where you're locked up, right? Um, so new news comes in and the stocks move up. Bad news comes in, they move down. So they, in, in large part, they reflect a lot of those secular trends. Um Cap rates, so the property level yield for regional malls, have gone from some of the lowest in the REIT market back uh, when, you know, 10 years ago, kind of everything was trading at a seven. They were at fives, so call it 200 basis points below the average, to double digit cap rates and spreads of probably 400 basis points higher. So dramatically different. Than on you know on the asset level basis than where they had been before some of the REITs that have that own the King of Prussia and the high quality assets I haven't seen quite as much cap rate expansion but but they've gone from one of the cheap the expensive. lowest yeah most expensive lowest yield um, uh, assets to among the highest yielding assets
1: as we wrap up the first segment here um, you you just mentioned the sort of pub, public versus private funds there's been some headlines. From some of the private funds, one of the big big private fund investors, who's gated some redemptions uh and say, "Hey, some of these funds are they're they're illiquid investments, so it's not easy to get out. They're just doing a natural right thing to do to gate people. but is there anything going on in private real estate you think people should be cautious of cognizant of implications for other?" investors.
0: Uh, yeah. you know the, the private real estate markets don't move anywhere near as fast as the public markets. And more to the fact that uh, the valuations that you might see are prescribed valuations. And by that, I mean, they're based on appraisals, appraisals that have happened over the last year, 18 months, which in and of itself was <laughs> quite a, a meaningful lag. But when you recall that those deals were probably negotiated six months before they closed, as the valuers look at these historical transactions to try to suggest what today's value of these assets that are not trading are, you're looking at literally two years ago's price in some cases. In today's radically different capital environment, those marks are not relevant anymore. So you're going to continue to see, I believe, private real estate marks slowly come down because it's just nature of the lagging way that it's done, whereas the public markets have already discounted this stuff and are literally now in a position where I think they can start to head up, particularly with the potential for the Fed to pause, as interest rates have been a big pall across the entire real estate industry for some obvious reasons. Um, But the REIT market kind of in particular as it's also weighed on sentiment. And so in the case of these private real estate funds, um, private real estate vehicles, were there, as you correctly said, not liquid, Unlike traditional REITs, um, you, know, you can, be, in effect, call, if you're a, an owner, at, uh, to your capital back at what was yesterday's price based on the appraisal that they're showing you because they give it back to you basically at, at that appraised value. And so that is one of the main reasons, I believe, that they've thrown up these gates in addition to just simply not being able to execute on the billions of dollars of requests.
1: What is a new economy? We talked a little bit at the start of the show about housing and office and retail and some of the macro trends in real estate. But when you thought about this new economy index, tell us a little bit about how you thought about what exposure should go in, what shouldn't go in, uh, and and a little bit about the segments of of real estate you're focused on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there's so much beyond just the traditional four food groups of the real estate space, right? That retail, office, residential. Uh, and industrial that we talked about, and in particular in the REIT space, and that, that has been a real growing segment of the REIT space. So um, you think about things like data centers, right the physical house of the internet, that is a huge focus of this fund. It's about eighteen percentage points roughly speaking of the of the index. Cell phone towers, that the as well as some of the fiber that connects those cell phone towers and so forth, that physical presence that we use to connect with our phones, um, that's about another twenty five percentage points, roughly speaking, of the uh, uh, index. Logistics, e-commerce fulfillment sort of uh, facilities. So some people think call them industrial, but they're really very very different assets. Uh, they're just they're kind of like Willy Wonka type uh, machines inside of a box um, mm-hmm. to enable. Same day delivery, very very different type of warehouse than your 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 grandfather's warehouse. That's about forty, a little bit more, of the uh, index. Then we got life science, so where they're actually doing experiments and they're developing new drugs and they're developing new therapies. That's about seven eight percentage points of the focus. With we, uh, we focus on the cold storage space as well. Some of these kind of nuanced niche property types, um, office that is in uh, and specifically tailored to technology tenants where they have very different needs than kind of your traditional office tenants. So anywhere where it can be kind of a little bit nuanced and in the major tech corridors. So you think about, um, you know, uh, uh, Silicon Valley, Seattle, San Diego, for example, Boston, um, where you have a real technology hub. Um, and, um, I think I had all the uh, all the segments. So it's that it's that it, I would maybe phrase it as the real estate that is empowering the twenty first century.
1: Well, it's a very topical thing, I was excited we had you on when when I heard this, this the quote from Nvidia last week. It was a big headline. The the data centers are going to invest a trillion dollars. In chips, and maybe that maybe that's uh, not exactly the right way of framing is just the data but all the investments needed for the AI economy and the chips needed. Talk through the economics. I mean, Professor Siegel made a comment on our show last week saying, "Hey, who's going to fund this trillion dollars? Like the pricing of these things, people need to make a profit if they're going to make these capital expenditures. How does that translate to your world investing in these data
0: center locations?" Yeah, absolutely. So generative AI, I think, is an unequivocal positive. For the data center industry but the one thing you need to remember is all the data center owners do in air quotes only uh, is they provide power cooling and connectivity so they don't actually own the computers that do the the computing, right? That's actually what the tenant owns. And that's the investment that the tenant makes. And so as you think about the demand for these chips and NVIDIA, who knows, maybe five years, we'll look back and they'll say that we'll we'll say that was a light estimate, given how transformative AI could potentially be, because it's going to be across every industry in every vertical in every geography. And so as you start to think about the math of um, all of those tenants, enterprises from universities, to finance, to banks, to large uh, industries, small industries, small companies, large. It's, it's, <clears throat> there's not a corner of the economy that probably won't be touched by AI and therefore the need to make some sort of an investment in AI. But the, the good news from the perspective of the real estate owner is that's not a, a capital investment that the data center company needs to make. It's an investment that the tenant is making in the data center owner's building. And so, as an owner of a building, I'm thrilled to see the tenant putting hundreds of millions of dollars into their space when it might be a $100 million box on my end, you know? Chris, I think
1: Rothman just made some headlines about, in five years, NVIDIA might be understating it. That's an interesting headline. Um, But talk a little bit about, so you, you mentioned the cooling and the energy. Talk a little bit more about the energy required for a data chip that's AI-powered versus the old school chips. Yeah,
0: these new um, high-performance chips draw dramatically more power. They're processing far more transactions and uh, circuits and so forth, so it shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, Cabinet, which is what the typical kind of like box where the computers go in, in an older style data center, uh, was about five to eight uh, kilowatts. Today, you need to be about 50 to 60 kilowatts for that same box because the chips themselves use about five to 10 times more power than the old style chips. It's a big story. It's a big story. Um, but the interesting thing is that the, um, those newer assets, particularly the big public companies, the Equinix's digital realties of the, of the world, have been evolving their designs along with the tenant's along with the hardware manufacturers to ensure that they're not gonna outstrip their available power, their available cooling, or their available connectivity. So the for example, um, and I was just on a call yesterday with uh, Digital Realty talking about almost exactly this, uh, this topic. And um, NVIDIA has uh, certified 30 of their data centers so far as um, basically being able to accept the new newest chip. In other words, it's sort of like a stamp of approval of NVIDIA to, to, to users to suggest that um, it, it's going to work in this kind of power drain and in these type of cabinets, so it's, which is, I think, a big competitive advantage that a digital realty is gonna have over some older style office or data center assets where you may not necessarily have that same power density. The other big thing is, is you know, data gravity and having the uh, data sets near the compute power. At the moment, just you don't necessarily need to have the compute power on top of the data set. With AI, generative AI in particular, that's changing.
1: I'm hearing a big commodity demand story. I'm I'm curious as, I mean, your focus is real estate. Chris and I focus a little bit on commodities as well. But I'm curious, as as you think about that dynamic of, A, it it could be five to eight times more kilowatts needed, but they're doing things to optimize. Do you have a sense how much more energy demand there is from these AI chips?
0: That's a good question. I don't, right offhand. I think, you know, it's going to be, um, certainly additive, right? If you think about um, if you have an electric car, maybe it's like the difference between level one, level two, level three charging, right? Uh, there's no question that we're going to be using more electricity. Um, how much more? Anybody's guess at this point. But I would certainly s- deposit a lot. Uh, you're you're sniffing up the right tree there.
1: Chris, let me bring you in. You've been listening. In. Uh, you focus a lot on these themes. Any, any questions of where the NVIDIA or, or, or chips are going for, for all these things?
3: So, so Eric, um, what I've experienced so far, and admittedly, I I think you've hit on a classic thing that we do in markets. We we tend to overestimate where we're going in the short term. And people might at this moment and clients talk to us about possibly how the market's overestimating based on, say, NVIDIA's return in the last few months. But uh, we we also have many stories of underestimating uh, the long term. So it's it's absolutely true that more it's more likely than not that we're actually underestimating where we're heading. We've already done that with smartphones and uh, probably social media and all sorts of things. But you step back and you say, you look at the performance and you say, okay, people understand why they might want to invest in NVIDIA, AMD, etc., They also understand why they might want to invest in meta platforms and Alphabet and, you know, those kind of companies. But and maybe it's just me, but I I sometimes have trouble steering the investor in today's environment. Why might or what's the case why Equinix or some of these others are a particularly interesting story? And, And what is it that I'm missing and what is it that people out there might be missing if indeed it is? A powerful story because it it feels like they get you know the chips and the components and the major cloud players uh, but I admittedly don't see anywhere near the same headlines about Equinix or or some of these you know physical data center providers
0: it's a good question I I think people are just starting to realize it right I mean uh, chat GPT kind of popped up on everybody's radar who's not in the industry uh, around November, um and so the first order move is to you know maybe the things that to the general public are more obvious right? the chip manufacturers, hardware manufacturers, and so forth um and sometimes buildings get forgot about, and I think that might be a classic case of what's happening here um in the last couple of weeks, two, three months. Um, the data centers have started to perform much better we're hearing a lot more about the implications for data center space. Um, in terms of uh, uh, generative AI as a as a demand driver. Um, and so I think it's just a function of people hadn't really been asking the right question or thinking about it. Real estate tends to be uh, a slower moving space. We're kind of downstream from everything. And it's not often the first thing that people uh, think of and, and make an investment in. But- um, so I feel like we're we're still early you know uh, in terms of the impact that it'll have specifically on the data center space dLr's prediction for whatever that's worth was that um, generative AI and by the way, there's all kinds of other AI going on we, you know, let's not forget about machine learning and speech recognition and so forth, but just the generative AI portion could be uh, bigger than the demand that they saw from cloud so if we're it's thinking big about event. yeah yeah if you think about where we are from you know kind of uh you know, adoption of a cloud 15 years ago kind of standpoint, I think this is probably where we are here in uh, generative AI. It's early on.
3: And and Eric, you you sort of think you've got data. So data is sort of the core of everything here in generative AI and all the types of AI. They're basically tools that are are processing and and managing and getting insights from this data. But you, you sort of have the idea of the processing power, which could be captured by NVIDIA, you have the idea of the storage, which could be captured by the major cloud players and even, I guess, the physical data centers, if you think about it. But something else that admittedly I don't hear as much about, but I think is just as important is you mentioned it as part of you know the pillars of alternative real estate, the connectivity in the sense that it, it doesn't work. ChatGPT does not achieve the, vir- the virality that it achieved. Like part of the right time that it came along is because we had 5G. The fact of the matter is a lot of the AI workloads are occurring in the cloud and there's this back and forth processing. So are we, are we seeing yet, or is that another example of a second or a third order where maybe it's not yet the case that you're seeing the action and the excitement around, you know, the 5G players, the, the tower infrastructure
0: providers? Yeah, I think it. I, I really do think it were early on, and so that probably is a second or third order uh, move. Um, all of this data is going to be consumed in so many different ways, and um, mobile is going to continue to be a very, very big piece of that. Mobile 5G is so much more uh, is, is so much more of an ability to move data that it you know these sorts of applications couldn't have even been dreamed of. Two years ago or three years ago, before the advent of five G, and so as people figure out that that's the case and how to use it, um, I think these these tools will become even more important. And five G cell is uh, absolutely a critical piece of this. That that yeah, you're ahead of the market. I think thinking about um, where this is going. You mentioned the tow- towers and, and you, you, were
1: forty percent of your index. How, how do you see and, and and even in traditional real estate, they've grown so much that mm-hmm. they're now some of the largest in general real estate because uh, it's come to dominate the market. Anyway, anyways, but talk about the the economic streams there. You see how how are these things priced versus other real estate? You'd say and and anything about but but the the economics there.
0: Sure. So uh, it's been one of the spaces that uh, you know, frankly, maybe surprisingly, has not performed as well in the last eighteen months. Um, despite the fact that we're on this, this the, right in the middle of this 5G rollout. And I think part of it is they kind of got caught up in some of the, the tech sell-off that happened late last year. And then the tech sell uh, rebound that's happening this year so far, to Chris's point, hasn't really seemed to affect the the, the cell phone world yet. Um, there's been some kind of some idiosyncratic issues related to the industry. It's certain carriers who I probably won't mention here, but where there was... Some real excitement in early and late 21 about a potential new entrant. That entrant kind of stalled a little bit, although today's headlines um, suggest that maybe, depending upon what you believe and what you want to read, that they may be back kind of with with a vengeance. And if you'd notice today, the the towers are outperforming uh, quite a bit. So I think you have kind of uh, an interesting dynamic that's happening um, from a valuation perspective, though it's created an opportunity where these Stocks are basically at kind of what the average multiple is for the overall real estate space, despite the fact that it's one of the best business models I've ever seen, right? You've got um, very long live leases, enormous secular demand, multiple year leases. Um, In many cases, you're starting to get um, CPI escalators involved. And so you've got a really durable income stream with not any capex, Basically, just a kind of a metal tower effect, a very tall, very complicated metal tower, but a lot less complicated than building a skyscraper, um, where you get um, every time you add a tenant, you get to double your or triple your, uh, your revenue or you know, increase it by a third, 50%. Um, and anytime that the tenant actually goes in there to, to adjust the tenant, the, the, the tower, you're going to collect in a new re- revenue stream. So you got very durable income, which is kind of being overlooked by the market today, and I think maybe the excitement of a few other things, despite the fact that we're early on in the uh, rollout of 5G.
3: Eric, I wanted to also ask you about what you're seeing, at because you, you mentioned how another big part of the new economy story is sort of, you know, not, not your grandfather's warehouse. The, the idea that it's very different to be able to deliver, like Jeremy was saying, in two days or within the hour, uh, potentially, depending on what you're ordering. And a story that you hear a lot, and it relates back to, I guess, the macro picture and what the professor was saying, and given its job say, is, is sort of this, the use of, of robots, the deployment of robots. Amazon's always central to that story. But I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any insight on how or if Factories that are operating in that way are tending to go less the direction of hiring people who may want to unionize and do all these different things and more in the direction of uh, robots, some of which might actually be using machine learning and AI.
0: Well, there's no doubt that uh, the big logistics providers are using more and more robots today. I don't necessarily know that it's at the expense of people. I think it's used more to make those people more productive, to make those assets more productive. Um, Maybe someday. Uh, that 's always seems to be the fear, but uh, that they 'll replace people, but I think that they 're actually using it in conjunction with people from a from a landlord 's perspective it 's the best thing possible though right and you think about it if it 's a eighty million dollar warehouse um, that then the tenant puts in three hundred four hundred five hundred million dollars in some cases to plug into the middle of their distribution system, you know that they 're not moving anywhere. Warehouse and real estate expense tends to be a very, very tiny expense overall to most um, uh, logistics providers. Transportation is far more. And so having the right asset in the right area is going to give you a lot of pricing power. And we've seen that now over the last really five, 10 years. The ability to push rents, which makes up a very small portion of the overall cost structure of these users, um, has been enormous. In the, in, in the last couple of years. And the more investment that the tenant makes in your location, the better. And so we love to see it.
1: It's so real estate. This area is all a good inflation hedge. Is this, is that your view? All this modern economy, real estate is, is good for. Protecting? I believe it.
0: I really do. You know, they're, they're longer duration assets, but you don't have ex- operating expenses. Operating expenses are generally sp- spoken, passed through to tenants. Okay. There's a very low labor Uh, utilization. So you don't have like labor pressures moving things too, too much. And then the higher materials costs, higher labor costs, higher construction costs increases the value of your existing asset. And so you get a a, a simultaneous clamp down on new supply in, in higher inflationary environments. And at the same time, you get the ability to increase rents a little bit faster. Real estate lags. So sometimes there's a bit more of a, uh, you know, they're not the first order effect of what moves up when you think about inflation. Um, but I really do firmly believe, and, and the textbooks would tell you, by the way, that real estate is a good inflation hedge.
1: One of the things I know Chris likes about how Center Square thinks about building indexes and and sort of strategies, you combine things from valuations and growth. Maybe give us a few minutes on just how you thought about the index, the trade-offs between what price you're paying and how these companies are growing, uh, which is sort of built into your, your index construction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The index is not just as simple as uh, we pick you know, 25, 50, in this case, 50 names that um, happen to kind of fit a theme. Um, what we do is we rebalance that index twice a year um, and we apply a number of different screens. So the first is to make sure that they have truly uh, new economy real estate. Not every industrial owner or every life science office building uh, is truly a life science building. Um, and so we fare it out and we know the companies very, very well from having covered them and studied them and being in the market, managing tens of billions of dollars uh, across these companies. And we know their portfolios very, very well. So we know exactly what companies Around the globe for the theme, and then we provide a um, a small screen for ESG to kick out, uh, you know, kind of bad actors that doesn't remove too many, but just you know, it's there in case. And then we also apply a valuation screen um, to um, basically um, pick the best of the best. Is maybe the best way to describe it. And
1: and that trade off in valuation and growth—is there any dynamic? Which one's favored, or or how you think about that trade off?
0: Uh, for us, valuation tends to be the the, the first, and then uh, growth being the second, um, in general. Because uh, I guess maybe the way that it works is because the um, all of these have kind of the strong secular growth and that tends to be less of a diviner between that in the index or not in the index, and it becomes that the uh, the valuation piece of it.
1: In final thirty seconds, uh, as you think about where the valuations are generally in that basket, how how would you say is an opportunity? How does it compare to other things you're looking at?
0: Yeah, the interesting thing right now is this new economy of real estate is broadly speaking priced at basically the average multiple, the average cap rate of the overall publicly traded real estate space, and it typically is at a very high premium. So from that perspective, you're able to get it at a discount to where it used to be.
1: When I think about big tech, you know, I've been I have this daily dashboard at Wisdom Tree, uh, and we we show the expanded tech sector of the S and P, which is sort of like uh, the Amazons combined with the traditional tech, is at twenty seven and a half times earnings, which is you know it's a it's a decent premium to the tech sector's valuation. So the X tech is only sixteen times, but you know it's it, the traditional tech is not a cheap segment of the market. And your point is, hey, these stocks are at average, which is good for them because they're usually at a premium. Absolutely. Thanks for coming to Wharton, Chris. Thanks for dialing in. Dion. here in the studio, good hanging out with you all day. We will see you next week. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz.